can be seated. And that's just a couple of announcements real fast before we kind of continue on with our time of worship. Um, so following the service today, we will have um, first you know, Sunday school downstairs for kids and also cross-training up here where we'll kind of discuss the passage and discuss the sermon a little bit. So you're welcome to join us for that. And then following that, we'll have a, a brief, hopefully, congregational meeting where we'll um, you know, uh, vote on Josh Welch being nominated the missions chair. Um, if we don't have a quorum, which well, doesn't seem like great odds at the moment, um, we will mail out ballots um, for those of you who are joining us online um, for you to be able to vote that way as well. Um, yeah, so we are thankful for those of you who have been continuing to faithfully give to what we're doing here in ministry at uh, Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We thank you for your support um, and allowing us to do that. And so on your way out, if you want to continue to give, there's baskets to your left on your way out. Or if you're watching online or want to give online, you can go to our church website and there are um, ways to give online as well. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you you love us, you care for us, you are good to us, that you have given us a chance to gather together as your people, that you've given us technology for those who can't be here in person to gather with us, still praise you, still worship you, still hear your word. Um, I just pray that you would be with each of us as we yeah, just continue to face the days ahead, whatever that may look like. Um, that you would be with us, that you would give us um, endurance and peace and confidence that you are a good God with good purposes, even in the midst of trial. Uh, yeah, we pray for people in our church who are sick, who are um, struggling, pray that you would bring them healing and health. And we pray for doctors and nurses and teachers and those who are feeling most acutely the effects of the pandemic that you would give them peace and endurance um, that they yeah, seek to do their job faithfully and well in trying circumstances. Uh, God, we just pray that we worship you this morning, we hear your word this morning, that you would be glorified, that we would make much of you, that we would be equipped to go from here and to proclaim your goodness and your glory to the people around us. You'd be honored by all that takes place here this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand again if you're able, and we'll sing some more songs.
You can be seated. As we were singing that last refrain, right, that it's your breath in our lungs, like, it struck me, like, especially in this season, like, it's so tempting to think about, like, the things we are being deprived of, like, we don't have the move we used to, and, like, forget, right, that, like, it's God who gives us breath, right? Like, every breath we breathe is a gift from God. And it's easy, at least for me, to get kind of bogged down and think about what I don't have or what I'm lacking. But, like, and every breath is a gift. Every breath is a gift from God. Um, so I just pray for myself, for us, that we would use the breath that that song sings to pour out praise to God. All right, so we're picking up our, our series in, in Luke this morning. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to cover verses 26 through 38. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there. And while you do that, like one of the, one of the highlights for me about being back in Wisconsin after years away in Minnesota and Kentucky and wherever else is that being back in Wisconsin means I'm back in the land of cheese curds. Like, like I, I love cheese curds in all varieties. Like, and like, it's shocking that you can't walk into every gas station in Kentucky and find cheese curds. Like, they're just, they're not, they're not there. Right? But, and like, so I love all cheese curds. But I especially love me you a know, good, like, deep fried cheese curd. Now, I know there's some of you out there who are like purists or whatever, and you know, like you're all with a fresh, squeaky cheese, cheese curd, and like they're fine. Right? But like it's not, can't compete with a good, like just deep fried cheese curd. Like anything deep fried is better than it not deep fried. And so, like, occasionally our family will go out to eat, and being in Wisconsin, like every restaurant ever has cheese curd for an appetizer. And so we'll order some cheese curds and enjoy them. Right? But it causes a problem. Because right? an appetizer is supposed to be like a warm-up to the meal. Right? It's supposed to like prime your taste buds for what is to come. Right? But like, I enjoy cheese curds so much that the meal is almost always less enjoyable than the cheese curds. Right? The meal becomes something of a disappointment. Like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The prelude is supposed to get you ready for the main event, not supersede the main event. In last week's sermon, we saw how the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, and he prophesies the birth of John the Baptist. And Gabriel makes it clear to Zechariah that John is going to be the forerunner of the Savior. He can be the, the opening act, not the main show. But if you read some of the things that Gabriel said about John, like it's fair to wonder how the thing that's going to come after John could possibly live up to John. Like here's some of the things that Gabriel says about John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. 
Never mind the fact that he's going to be born miraculously to an old woman well beyond her child-bearing years. All these things are true of John. That's a tough act to follow. You wonder, like, how is the one who's going to come after John going to live up to John or exceed John? Just as it takes an extraordinary meal to outshine cheese curds, like it's going to take an extraordinary person to outshine John the Baptist. And in fact, later in Luke, Jesus is going to say of John, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Right, so if the one who's going to come after John is going to supersede John, it's going to take something truly unique. No mere mortal can supersede John. The only way for the one who comes after John to supersede John is for God himself to come to earth. And that's just what happens in the person of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to see how, like, just like Gabriel showed up to Zechariah, and prophesy John's birth, he's now going to show up to Mary and prophesy the birth of Jesus, the one who is greater than John. And like throughout, throughout this passage, Luke's going to intentionally draw parallels right, between the story of John being prophesied and the story of Jesus being prophesied. There can be clear parallels, clear connections. And like the point of those passages is to show that Jesus really is greater than John. So as we kind of make our way through our passage this morning, we're going to stop along the way and just kind of compare the two prophecies next to each other. And at the end, I hope we're going to see like that Jesus truly is even greater than John. And so we're going to pick this up. We're going to start in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. And it says this. In the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, if we just like stop right there, we see kind of the first point of comparison. Like when Gabriel shows up to Zechariah and tells him about John, he shows up like at the peak of John's professional career. Like John is in the temple, he's a priest, his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in the temple, offering incense in Jerusalem, in the center of Jewish life. Like he's at the peak of his career. Like in short, Gabriel showed up to John, to Zechariah, like where we might expect him to show up to prophesy and announce like a new work of God among his people. He shows up to a righteous priest in the temple in the most important city in Judaism. But when Gabriel shows up to announce Jesus' birth, he shows up in an obscure town called Nazareth. Like, like how obscure is Nazareth? Like, well, it, it's so obscure that he feels the need, Luke feels the need to point out, oh, by the way, that's the town in Galilee. Like, you may have never heard of it, but Nazareth is a town in Galilee. And we talked about Jerusalem, he doesn't feel the need to point out what region Jerusalem's in. Right? It's like how, like, when you read the newspaper, you look at the dateline, right? the AP style guide has a list of like 30 cities where their, their writer can just like list the name of the city and not include the state after it. Right? So if the dateline is Los Angeles, you don't have to write Los Angeles, California. Right? If it's New York, you don't have to write New York, New York. If it's Dallas, you don't, you don't have to write Dallas, Texas. 
Like you can just trust that people know what you are talking about when you say Dallas. But if you're going to write a story from Hiles, or Three Lakes, or Eagle River, or wherever, like, you better include the WI. Because right? no one outside of this little region is going to know what you're talking about. And that's what we got going on here with Nazareth, right? It's this tiny little village that even Luke, writing to people who lived in that time, feels the need to point out where it is. It's a town in Galilee. Like it's a small little town. It's up in the hills of northern Israel in the region of Galilee. People estimate that in Jesus' time, there are about 400 people who lived in Nazareth. And John tells us in his gospel that when Jesus starts to gain notoriety, like people are shocked that something like worthy of attention can come from Nazareth. Right? Like, in fact, some people ask the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is this nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Martin Luther once wrote, like, God could have chosen, could have gone to Jerusalem and picked Caiaphas, who was the high priest's daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold embroiderment, and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting for Jesus' mother. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. God shows up to this girl in Nazareth, this little town, rather than choosing some great, high, powerful person in Jerusalem. And you might be thinking, like, but I thought the point of comparing these two stories was to show that Jesus was greater than John. But then shouldn't the, the stories be flipped? Like, shouldn't John have been prophesied in Nazareth and Jesus in Jerusalem? But to think that misses the point of what Jesus came to do. Like, as the book of Luke unfolds, it becomes clear that Jesus came primarily to save his people from their sins. But in order to do that, he needed to humble himself and be made like us in every way. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, we read, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' life was all about humbling himself for our sake. And the culmination of that humble life was the humiliation on the cross. But the humble nature of Jesus' life was made clear even from the very beginning. The fact that Gabriel shows up to this humble, nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But Jesus' humble life doesn't negate his greatness. Philippians goes on to say, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Like Jesus' life is the ultimate testament to the fact that God is pleased to exalt those who humble themselves and humble those who exalt themselves. So like, therefore, as Christians, we ought to be like the most humble people in the world. But like, I fear that's not the case. Simple pride, right? the opposite of humility, is pride. It's a, it's a nasty enemy. We all have this desire to make ourselves look good. Like the 4th century theologian Augustine of Hippo argued that like, pride is the beginning of sin. That pride is the sin that lies underneath and motivates all other sin a desire to make ourselves look good rather than God is one of our, our deepest problems. Like, and I know this bared itself out in my life. Right? Like, even as I write sermons sometimes, there's like, this temptation to be more concerned about sounding smart or eloquent than with actually glorifying God. Like, and I pray that, that I overcome that, and that's not the case, but there's definitely that temptation within me. And I know it's like, not just me. Like, it's not hard to look around and find Christians falling into the type of pride left and right. Like, you see leaders of organizations making mistakes, fueled by pride. There's a lot of examples. Right? So we, we all face the temptation to be pride, prideful on a regular basis. And like the exhortation of this passage is that as we face those temptations to remember our Savior, like remember Him who gave up the glories of heaven and humbled Himself to enter into a sinful world. Remember the one who was raised in this humble little village. Remember the one who humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross for your sake because you couldn't do it on your own. You have no reason for pride. And then, like, let us be, as we remember those things, let us be a people known for our humility. But it wasn't just Jesus' city of origin that was humble. His family of origin was humble as well. We pick up the story in verse 28. We read, The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went, with, went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his word and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. All right, so again, if we compare John to Jesus, like John's parents were this elderly couple from priestly families who Luke goes out of his way to make sure he tells us were, that they were righteous and they walked blamelessly with God. But Jesus' mom at their hand was just a virgin betrothed to be married. So typically, in Jewish culture at this time, a young woman was betrothed at the age of 12 which means that Mary was probably 12 or 13 when these things take place. And Luke makes no mention of her moral character. Like, like you might be inclined to say, but look, 
It says Mary is highly favored and has found favor with God. Like, surely she must have done something to earn God's favor. But the root of that word favor is the same root as the word for grace. Which is, so it's a free gift of God. God didn't choose Mary because of anything meritorious in her. Like, he didn't look around Israel and find the most virtuous young woman betrothed to be married he could and then chose Mary. He chose Mary not because of her moral character, because he freely decided to show grace to this young woman. Again, aren't you glad that God chooses to extend grace to us not because of anything we do to earn it, but at the free gift. Like if receiving God's favor was dependent on what I did to earn it, like I would certainly fail. But God's favor is received as a free gift of God's grace. And once again, right from the beginning of Jesus' life, Luke is pointing us forward to what Jesus' ministry is going to be all about. As Luke unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that the reason Jesus came was, for, was to provide a way for all people to be saved from their sins. He was going to do that by living a perfect life that we couldn't live and dying on the cross in our place. So that through faith in him, we can be forgiven of our sins. And God offered us that forgiveness as a free gift of grace. Not because of anything we can do to earn it. God doesn't offer us forgiveness on the basis of our good works. Not by reading the Bible, not by coming to church, not by praying. God offers us forgiveness because of faith in Jesus as a gift of his grace. And God's saving grace is even evident in his name. Verse 31, as we said, Gabriel says, instructs Mary to name the child Jesus. And Jesus means Yahweh saves. In Matthew's account of the same story, he adds, Gabriel adds to the end of this, that you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But not only did Jesus come to save us from our sins, he also came to reign as king. Continuing in verse 32, we read, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So here we see another example, another comparison between Luke and Jesus. In Luke 1.15, Gabriel tells Zechariah that John will be great in the sight of the Lord. But here, Gabriel tells Mary, he will be great, period, Full stop. He will be great. John will be great before the Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And in the Old Testament, whenever something is called great without qualification, the way Jesus is here, it almost always refers to God. Like only God is truly, ultimately, fully great. And therefore, only he deserves to be called great without any kind of qualification. So when Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus will be great, 
without any qualification, he is pointing towards Jesus' deity. And he points to it even further in the next statement. He says, he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, of course, there's a sense that all of us who believe in Jesus are children of God. Anyone who has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins is a son of God, or a child of God. But Jesus is the Son of the Most High in a unique way. He did not become a child of God in some, at some point in time. He is the eternal Son. He has always existed in loving relationship with the Father. And as we'll see in a minute, like the fact that Jesus doesn't have a biological father is essential to him being able to achieve what he came to achieve. But before we get there, we should know that while Jesus doesn't have a, an earthly biological father, he does have an adopted father, Joseph, who is from the line of David. And so Joseph would have adopted Jesus and raised him as his own. And the way Jewish adoption laws work, the fact that Joseph was from the line of David, it meant that Jesus would have been considered from the line of David as well. And because Jesus is from David's line, through Joseph, he's able to fulfill the promise God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, when he said, your house, that's David's house, your house your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God promises David that he will have a king who will be seated on the throne forever. And the Jewish expectation on how this would work is that God would raise up this mighty warrior king from the line of David, and he would restore the nation of Israel to independence, and then he would rule as king but eventually he would get old and die. So then his son would rule in his place until he got old and died. Then his son would rule, and on and on and on. So it should be this never-ending string of king from David's line. But as we see here in Luke, that's not what's going to happen. Instead, Luke says that God will give Jesus the throne of David, and he will reign forever. His kingdom... Jesus' kingdom will never end. It's not, it's not that Jesus will reign for a little while and then his child will reign in his place after he dies. Right? No, Jesus himself is going to reign forever. His kingdom will never end. And so again, here we see another example of how Jesus is greater than John. John came, we're told, to turn people back to the Lord. But Jesus comes to reign over the people as Lord, forever. And that truth, right, that, that Jesus' kingdom will never end, should be both a, a comfort to us and a challenge to us. Right now, Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, exists in this kind of in-between state, right, what some people have called an already-not-yet state. Like on the cross... Jesus has already defeated Satan, sin, and death through his crucifixion and resurrection. But we do not yet see the fully realized truth of that kingdom. Like We still struggle with sin. We still live in a clearly broken and fallen world. 
Satan is still active and at work causing pain and suffering on the earth. It's like Jesus reigns as king in a way that is already, but not yet. And so like we should find we should find comfort in the first that one day like Jesus will return. And when he does, he will completely destroy Satan, sin, and death. And we will live in his perfect kingdom forever. And if we really believe that, like, that should be incredibly, incredibly comforting to us. And no matter what we're going through right now, no matter any pain you may be enduring, no matter how badly you've been emotionally hurt by someone, like whatever you're going through, like if you're a follower of Jesus, you can look forward to the day when all that pain, when all suffering will be taken away and you will live forever in Jesus' perfect kingdom. And that should be a great comfort. But the reality of Jesus' eternal kingdom should also be a challenge to us. As Christians, we are members and citizens of the kingdom of God. But we also, as citizens, have been given a job in that kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a precious verse to many Christians, and it, it should be. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Right? Like, if we're in Christ, we're made new. That's a precious promise of our own personal salvation. But as we, as we cling to and claim that verse, and remember that verse and reassure ourselves of our own salvation, we can't forget what comes next. Verse 18 through 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. It's still God are making his appeal through us. In his teaching, and especially his parables, like Jesus often talks about the kingdom, his kingdom starting small and advancing slowly. And he could have used like any means he wanted to advance his kingdom. But the means he chose was to make us his ambassadors and send us out to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. He gives us a job right, to go into the world on behalf of the eternal king and to implore people to be reconciled to God. We serve the king whose kingdom will never end. He has bestowed upon us the great privilege of representing him as his ambassador. And my hope my prayer is that we would take that responsibility seriously. We would represent our king well as his ambassadors in the world.
So Gabriel makes this great promise to Mary that she would have the child who would reign on David's throne forever, that he have a kingdom that never end. But then Mary points out what to her seems like one minor problem. In verse 34 she says, How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Like, Mary's like, yeah, you say you're gonna, I'm going to have a son, but uh, I'm not married. I haven't done the thing you need to do to have a kid. Like, how is this going to work? And it's interesting to compare this reply to Zechariah's reply when John was prophesied. Zechariah says, like, how can I be sure of this? In other words, like, how can I know you're telling the truth? Like, Mary, on the other hand, like she, she seems to accept what the angel is saying is true. Like she's just kind of curious about the, the how. And because of that difference, Gabriel answered her much more gently than he answered Zechariah. Zechariah asked his question, and Gabriel like, made him unable to talk. He struck him mute. Like Mary asked her question, and Gabriel graciously answers, Verse 35, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So Gabriel tells Mary that the birth of this this child will be an utter miracle. A complete act of God that has never been seen before and never will be seen again. And so John's birth was miraculous, certainly, but Ultimately, it used the ordinary means of human reproduction, like and God had done similar miracles before. It was Sarah, with Hannah. He'd done similar things before. But Jesus' birth and conception would be altogether unique. Just once again, showing that Jesus is even greater than John. And of all the miracles in the Bible that people want to discredit, none is more frequently targeted than the virgin birth. But affirming the virgin birth is absolutely essential to our faith. Like for one, like the Bible says it, right? so rejecting the virgin birth is rejecting the word of God. But also, it's absolutely essential that Jesus be born both of a woman and of God. It's essential that Jesus be both fully human and fully God. Philip Reichen says, Jesus had to be born of a woman, to be a man. But if he had been the physical offspring of Joseph, then he would have been nothing more than a man. Jesus needed to be fully human so that he could be our representative and take our place on the cross. But he also needed to be fully God because that was the only way he could have perfectly obeyed the law and so that taking our place made him able to forgive our sins. So the virgin birth is essential but Gabriel also knows it's hard to believe, and so he gives Mary a sign and a word of reassurance. Verses 36 and 37 say, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, serves as a sign to Mary that God is at work and that God is able to do whatever he pleases. Then he offered her these precious words of reassurance. 
No word from God will ever fail. The ESV translates that, nothing will be impossible for God. I'm like, the question is, like, do we believe that? Right? Not in just some like, sort of abstract way, like, yeah, I know God can do whatever he wants. Right? But in like, this personal and real way, that nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. That he could do anything he wanted in your life right now. Now, some people want to take this verse and to say, see, like, if you just have enough faith, if you just pray the right prayer, then God will do whatever you ask. But that's not what this verse is telling us. What this verse is telling us is that whatever you're going through, whatever struggles you may be having, we should bring them to God confident that he is able to do whatever he wills with them. And God may not take away your pains or your trials in the way that you would want him to. But this verse should give us confidence that if God has us walking through trials, it's not because he is unable to stop them, but because he, in his infinite wisdom, has determined that you're walking through this trial, at least for a time, is for your good and for his glory. And like, it's hard to see always how it is that that could be for our good, for his glory. But trusting that God is able means we have confidence that he has a purpose. Nothing is impossible for God. So by all means, like, bring your request to God. And be confident knowing that if he doesn't respond in the way you desire, like, it's not because he's not able, but because he has a purpose for what you are walking through. And finally, Luke ends this passage with a remarkable statement from Mary. And she says, in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So as we already said, like, Luke makes no mention of Mary's moral character before Gabriel shows up and God extends grace to her. But we've seen in this verse that after her encounter with the grace of God, Mary is radically transformed. We're, we're still familiar with the story of Mary and maybe rightfully at times concerned with the amount of veneration she receives in some circles. That it's easy to take for granted or dismiss what Mary would go through and what this response shows about her faithfulness to God. Like, just think about like, what the next nine months from this passage will look like for Mary. Here she is, this unmarried 12 or 13-year-old. She's engaged, right? and all of a sudden, she's pregnant. Just imagine for a second that the cultural, social scorn that she would have been facing. And just, like, imagine for a second what that conversation with Joseph would have been like. We know from Matthew's account of the story that like, God would eventually let Joseph in on what is happening, but not before Joseph made plans to divorce Mary. Mary facing a lifetime judgment 
for having a child out of wedlock, for what she's about to go through. Imagine all the things she was facing. And what does Mary say? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. That's the kind of faith that having an encounter with the grace of God ought to produce in us. Again, for all of us who trust in Jesus, we've encountered that grace. And so like, we should trust, like Mary, that nothing is impossible for God. We trust that Jesus is king and his kingdom will never end. If we trust and we believe those things, then we should be able to respond like Mary and say, whatever happens, whatever God has for me, whatever trials I go through, whatever pain I endure, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we desire to have a heart that says that, that says and acknowledges that we are your servants, that whatever you have for us, whatever future you hold for us, that we welcome it as a gift from you, trusting that you will use it for our good and for your glory. God, I confess that there are times when it is hard to see your purposes when I fail to trust, when I fail to remember your goodness. God, in light of what we saw in your word this morning, pray for each of us that we would be reminded that Jesus is King, that His kingdom will never end, that nothing can change or take away His kingship, that for all of us who trust and believe in Him, we are Your children and we are citizens of Your kingdom. that you love us, that you care for us, that you want the best for us, and also that you have a job for us to do as your ambassador representing the king. God, as we prepare to leave here and go out into the world, I pray that we would go confident of your good plans and with a desire to represent you well to proclaim your goodness, your grace, your glory to the people around us who don't know you, who aren't yet citizens of your kingdom. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we go, I do, as I said, pray that we would go with a desire 
to make great the name of our King, to proclaim His good news to the broken and lost world around us, that we would go confident that He has plans that are for our good and for His glory. Go in peace. You're dismissed.